This is Ozarks at Large for Wednesday, March 1st, 2023, on your public radio station, KUAF 91.3, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellums. Later this hour, we're able to sample one of last month's live editions of our podcast, Undisciplined. This time, the topic, food insecurity. First, recreational adult-use marijuana is now legal to purchase in Missouri with several hundred dispensaries licensed by the Department of Cannabis Regulation under the State Department of Health. Dispensary owners are reporting that Arkansas consumers are traveling to Missouri to legally purchase recreational pot. But, as Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich reports, transporting purchases back across the border into Arkansas is illegal. On November 8th last year, Missouri voters approved Amendment 3, a citizen-initiated ballot measure legalizing recreational marijuana. By early February, 335 medical marijuana facilities, including 207 dispensaries, 72 processors, and 56 cultivation facilities were approved to grow and process marijuana to sell for recreational use under consolidated licensure. In Springfield, Missouri, located an hour north of the Arkansas border, counts 10 such consolidated dispensaries. Hi, welcome to Flora Farms. How can I help you today? Hi. Um, I kind of want something for like an edible and maybe some flour. Um, can you help me out like figure out what's, what are the good edibles? Of course. Well, I've got these Wana Hybrid Sour Gummies. Nice, nice. They're perfect for daytime use, 100 milligrams in the whole container, 10 per gummy. Flora Farms operates a dispensary in Springfield as well as in Humansville, Neosho, and Ozark, employing around 200 staff, says President Mark Hendren. Flora Farms is a vertical uh, cannabis company in, located in Missouri. We have three um, cannabis cultivation licenses. We have four Um, cannabis dispensary licenses, and we have one cannabis manufacturing of infused product license. Each um, of those companies has a separate um, corporate structure. We do have about half of them are LLCs and about a third of them are C-Corps. Recreational marijuana became legal to purchase in Missouri on February 3rd. Within the first three days, more than $8.5 million worth of flour, smoke, edibles, concentrates, and tinctures sold, according to the Department of Health in Missouri, which administers the cannabis program. Consumers are allowed to legally purchase up to three ounces. It's three ounces or the three-ounce equivalent of any cannabis product. So the edible products and the infused products, there's, we have to use a conversion factor, which we have a chart that shows us what a, a gram of a particular um, infused product will translate into a certain amount of ounces under the regulations. Patrons must show a photo ID to enter a dispensary to confirm they are 21 years or older to purchase recreational marijuana. Registered medical marijuana patients, Hendren says, are directed to the medical side of consolidated dispensaries for priority treatment, although both consumers select from the same product lines. As for out-of-state recreational cannabis patrons? They're welcome. It's it's provided for. It's legal in Missouri under the amendment that was passed in November. In particular, we we have a dispensary in Neosha, which is about 20 miles from the Arkansas state line. And we have seen the largest increase in our business in all of our locations in that loca- in, in the Neosho store. It's, uh, it's up about five times over normal. And most of the other stores we have are up between two and three times over the medical count. But, yes, we have a lot of Arkansas customers. Hendren says during the first weeks of sale, dispensary phones rang constantly. Eighty percent of the conversations, phone calls we got, those three days were from Arkansas phone numbers, and it was essentially Arkansas residents uh, um, verifying that uh, recreational marijuana was now available in Missouri and what they, what they were required to bring with them to purchase. The state of Maryland late last year also legalized marijuana for adult use, joining 19 other states in Washington, D.C. Medical marijuana is now legal to purchase in 38 states, but under the Federal Controlled Substances Act, Marijuana remains classified as a Schedule I drug, similar to heroin and LSD. That makes it a felony offense to intentionally transport cannabis across state lines. 
Some states, for example, in Illinois, require recreational marijuana sales clerks to inform out-of-state patrons about the risks of carrying cannabis purchases out of state. Missouri cannabis sales clerks do not. I am unaware of any um, provisions in the Missouri regulations that require that. Um, it is, I mean, the, the Missouri Constitutional Amendment and the uh, and the regulations that the that the Department of Cannabis Regulation have issued are focused on the amendment and Missouri rules and regulations and Missouri law. A statement issued by Missouri State Highway Patrol says troopers are monitoring for any increase in drug-impaired drivers on Missouri roads, but declined commenting on cross-border transport enforcement methods. Arkansas State Police spokesperson Cindy Murphy emailed us for this report, only saying that more than 28,000 pounds of pot have been seized coming in from out of state over the past five years. Along the northwest Arkansas border, Benton County Sheriff Sean Holloway declined to comment, and Daniel Klatt, Sheriff of Carroll County, agreed to talk by phone, but only said this. I don't believe I'd want to comment on any enforcement strategies that we're using right now. Cross-border spillover effects of recreational marijuana legalization early research indicates yields a sharp increase in marijuana possession arrests, especially in border counties of neighboring states. Public consumption of recreational marijuana is prohibited in Missouri, but a provision in the new law provides a path to license retail consumption lounges where pot can be legally purchased and consumed on site, similar to a bar. Again, Mark Hendren with Flora Farms. Um, they're still working on those um, coordination, but we do believe that in, in 2023 you'll begin seeing consumption lounges and, and consumption opportunities all throughout Missouri. Wonderful. And then flower-wise, I don't know, I'm looking for something just really good smell, maybe of sativa. Okay, well, I've got this lemon OG haze in an eight. This is a lovely sativa, uh, pretty citrusy, so great taste on it. Awesome. All right, I'll go ahead and take that. Tax proceeds from adult-use cannabis sales in Missouri support the Missouri Department of Health and Senior Services, Veterans Health Care, the state's public defender system to provide legal assistance to low-income Missourians, and tax revenue will also be used to expunge marijuana convictions in Missouri courts, specifically cultivation, distribution, and possession with intent to distribute. And last but not least, under Amendment 3, adults age 21 and older can apply annually for state-issued personal cultivation cards at a cost of $100 to grow 18 recreational cannabis plants under lock and key at home. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. Still to come on the show, a conversation with Jerry Mitchell about his investigative work to help solve civil rights era murders. I think they all presume because I was a white southerner like them that, um, you know, I shared their beliefs. And, um, you know, I would consider it my obligation to share with a Klansman what I believe one way or the other or anybody else. I mean, you're just going to listen and, and, um, and ask questions. And so that's what I did. And. His book, Race Against Time, will be the subject of a conversation next week at the Fayetteville Public Library. We'll talk with him about it later this hour. This March, KUAF, the Community Spotlight, and the Elizabeth Richardson Center are needing your help to bust the box. March is Intellectual Disabilities Awareness Month, and for 60 years, the ERC has been working to enhance the quality of life for individuals with disabilities in our community. Through March 11th, they're specifically looking for cloth items, socks, towels, washcloths, etc. Here's Jen Adair with the ERC. You know, any type of thing that like an adult would need when they go out and live on their own, or like a new couple that you're trying to house them correctly, you know, um, that's the kind of stuff that we really need. Drop your donation at KUAF Public Radio at 9 South School in Fayetteville or at any Legacy Bank location. Just look for the big blue box. For the list of needed items or for more information, KUAF.com. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kellams. I'm Matthew Moore. Matthew. Yes. Tomorrow is the 64th anniversary of the day Miles Davis first went into the studio to record Kind of Blue. That's kind of amazing. It is. It, was the, it, it, it remains the best-selling jazz album of all time. I mean, rightfully so. Yeah. yeah. I've always said uh, Rob Wells, 
who you yes. and I both know, yeah. and has the show Jazz Scoop. He once did a, a show about what's if you were to introduce people to jazz who are interested but they don't know what, which one album would you suggest? And I've always said Kind of Blue. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like as someone who didn't really listen to jazz until I was out of college, that was the first record that was introduced to me. It's just like, oh, jazz is really good and yeah. I should listen to more of it. I think Dave Brubeck, Take Five, uh-huh. and that are the ones. Now, you mentioned listening to jazz. Did you know? That you can listen to jazz almost 24-7 via KUAF? That's right. I did know that thanks to KUAF3, our digital radio station. We've got, you can listen to it on your digital radio. You can listen to it with the KUAF app. You just hit the little, I think it's a little trumpet on the bottom there. It is. On <laughs> you your phone or your iPad, yeah. Yep. Uh, and on the weekends, there are also encore broadcasts of all of our locally produced music shows. Shades of Jazz, yep. uh, Generic Blue Show, uh, Vinyl Hour. Pick and post. Um, if that ain't if this ain't country, mm-hmm. and also you can hear hip hop hello on Sundays. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. How much does it cost to hear this station? Um, it is free. Right. The University of Arkansas Department of Political Science offers political science and public administration and nonprofit studies graduate programs. Both programs train the next generation of local, state, national, and global leaders in the public, nonprofit, and private sectors. Applications for fall 2023 and graduate assistantships are available for qualified applicants. plsc.uark.edu for more information. Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders is tasking a new working group with finding ways to improve the foster care system in Arkansas. The governor's strategic plan for foster care placement, which will see officials from state government work alongside private sector groups to help increase the number of foster parents and reduce the backlog of children seeking placement. Lori Holton-Courier is with the group Every Child Arkansas, a coalition of nonprofits faith-based organizations, and others working in the foster care space, which will also be involved in the governor's plan. Foster care tends to have a lot of mystery around it, right? People are just like, "Mm, foster care, not sure about that. Um, And we're uh, aiming to help people better understand that it's not as scary as it might seem, that there are actually um, huge blessings that come out of the opportunity to foster and care for a child. Courier says one of the first steps will be a new marketing campaign to help attract new foster families in the state to help make up for the fact that 43% of families involved in the foster care system dropped out of the program last year. We'd like to increase our retention rate in 2023 to 55%, which is a 12% change. That would be a huge thing to be able to retain those foster families. And that's really you know, just trying to overcome some of the challenges and offer all the supports that those families need. Every Child Arkansas will also launch a new website, which will interface with the Department of Human Services to help direct users to appropriate foster care resources. Roughly 4,100 children are currently in foster care in Arkansas. The Omnibus Education Package championed by Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders faced more scrutiny from lawmakers on the House Education Committee yesterday. Josie Lenora with our partner station KUAR has more. Committee members' questions focused on funding sources along with any unforeseen outcomes the bill could create. Many lawmakers voiced their concern that raising minimum teacher salaries to $50,000 could harm rural districts, which may not have the budgets to fund the requirement. Legislators questioned how smaller districts would also be able to pay support staff and maternity leave after the raises go into effect. Republican Representative Keith Brooks, the bill's primary co-sponsor in the House, said he's confident it can be funded. So you've got the funding matrix that's over here. That funding matrix has not changed. The LEARNS bill creates the additional pot of funding to support to bring up to the salary levels that are prescribed as a minimum. Democratic Representative Denise Gardner asked Brooks if private schools that receive public money are allowed to turn away disabled students. Would a private school then be able to refuse a student because of their disability? Based upon our current uh, current law, private schools have the opportunity to uh, evaluate the student and to make a decision based upon their capability of serving that student. Other questions focused on the bill's requirement for high schoolers to volunteer for 75 hours in order to graduate. Lawmakers also asked questions about the option for public schools to be taken over by charter systems and the bill's ban on critical race theory. 
Josie Lenora, KUAR News. The parents of a man killed by police using a no-knock warrant in Minneapolis will speak on the University of Arkansas campus tomorrow night. Amir Locke, the son of Karen Wells and Andre Locke, was shot to death by police in February 2022. His name was not listed on the no-knock warrant issued to Minneapolis police, and he was asleep on a couch when police entered the apartment. Karen Wells says the event tomorrow night is to educate people about no-knock warrants. Not only did it happen to our son, but it can happen to other um across the United States. And we don't want that to happen to anybody else, um, no matter what their age is. And um, we want them to know how, you know, how serious it is and that um, they're not good for anybody. Um, and that we want um, everybody to just join us as we are on this journey for getting justice for our son. We wanna make sure that they know that no-knock warrants are not good for anybody. Andre Locke says only recently has he felt that steps are being taken to change how no-knock warrants can be used by law enforcement. Congresswoman Ilhan Omar is proposing a bill, uh, the Amir, the Amir Locke Deadly No-Knock Act, so that we can rid um, no-knock warrants throughout the country. Um, so things are starting to look up now since this has happened. Well, when it happened to Breonna Taylor, and now since this happened to our son, um, it's bringing awareness um, really to the forefront. Jeffrey Storms, an attorney representing Karen Wells and Andre Locke, says none of the no-knock warrants issued for use by Minneapolis police in the four months leading up to Amir Locke's killing were used for white homes or residents. Karen Wells says she wants discussions like the one tomorrow night to place more awareness on these sorts of matters. I'm just being real. If they want to continue to do no-knock warrants, then you continue, then you do no-knock warrants out in the suburb. Now you go out there and you get victims. And when you then we'll then we'll have a conversation when the victims are looking like them that are actually doing the no-knock warrants. Then all of a sudden, then you'll want to be like, okay, well, then now we agree. No, it shouldn't take that for you to understand that our son was a victim. We cannot allow this to continue because now it's like, well. Although he wasn't involved in the no-knock warrant, we can just go on with our lives. No, you can't. Tomorrow night's panel discussion begins at 6.30 in the Union Theater in the Student Union on the U of A campus. The event is presented by the Solidarity Society, Multicultural Center, Undergraduate Mock Trial, and Young Democrats. Andre Locke and Karen Wells spoke with us yesterday by Zoom. Fort Smith ArcBest is selling its fleet debt segment to Atlanta-based Cox Automotive for $100 million cash. Talk Business and Politics reports FleetNet generated 6.4% of overall revenue in 2022. Pedal It Forward, a nonprofit dedicated to supporting cyclists in the area, is hosting the Kindle Mountain Tour tomorrow at 6.30 p.m. at the Fayetteville Public Library. They will be showing a series of adventure films from Britain's largest adventure film festival. They're coming to North America for the first time. And our goal was to just bring high-quality adventure film back to Fayetteville. And so we thought this would be a great uh, one for everyone to experience. The group aids the community by collecting, refurbishing, then distributing free or low-cost bicycles to those who can't afford them. All the money raised at this film event will benefit the mission of Pedal It Forward uh, and will help us repair and deliver bikes to folks in need in northwest Arkansas. This is happening Thursday night, March 1st at the Fayetteville Public Library. Local business will be in attendance, prizes, and to find more or register, you can visit pedalitforward.org. The Arkansas Razorback men's basketball team lost at number 12 Tennessee last night, 75-57, to fall to 19-11 overall, now 8-9 in the SEC. Arkansas closed out the regular season with a home game against Kentucky Saturday afternoon. The Arkansas women's basketball team opens play in the SEC tournament tomorrow morning at 11 against Missouri in Greenville, South Carolina. This is Ozarks at Large. In June 1964, nearly two dozen Klansmen colluded to murder three civil rights workers. Those murders went unprosecuted for decades, as did several other murders of black people in the South, including Medgar Evers and the girls killed in the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Those cases were all eventually reopened. Jerry Mitchell, an investigative journalist, was a catalyst for the reopening of those cases. He writes about them in the book 
Race Against Time. He'll be at the Fayetteville Public Library next week for a discussion with me for this year's edition of Gathering of the Groups. Last month, I talked with Jerry Mitchell about the book and about specifically starting to work on the end of the murder of Medgar Evers. Well, I, I, I think I'd be less than honest, but it, it didn't say somewhat of an accident since I was, I, was, I was definitely writing about these cases and wondering kind of in these stories, could this case be re-prosecuted and what evidence exists and that kind of thing. Uh, at the time when I reported that initial story, which the initial story uh, came from those secret spy files that Mississippi had, uh, and no one had been able to get access to the Mississippi Sovereignty Commission. And so I began to, uh, the first story was about how the state, uh, the same state that was prosecuting Byron D. Beckwith for the murder of Meg Rivers was also secretly assisting the defense trying to get Beckwith acquitted through the Sovereignty Commission, which was headed by the governor. And Arkansas had a Sovereignty Commission, by the way. Uh, in fact, it was... Um, it was essentially they, they came to Mississippi and copied the way that, that Mississippi was doing it. So I'm not sure where the Arkansas uh, records are, but, but the, the ones in Mississippi were sealed. And so I began to get leaks of those files, and that's what they showed. And as a result, um, the, the, I guess like the short version of that is it got reopened, and, and uh, uh, they began to look at it again. The name Byron D. LeBeckwith was not a surprise name associated uh, with the investigation. Um, what I was shocked was when you tried to contact him, he said yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I went and visited him. I went yeah. and spent about six hours talking to him. Uh, in order to talk to him, I had to kind of pass a quiz, you know what I mean? I had to... Uh, he was like, what are your parents' names? Where do you, you know, where, where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to college? I mean, all those kinds of things. Um, and, you know, I could have refused to answer, but I knew he'd love my answers, uh, you know, so I just answered honestly. And, and he was like, come on. So I, I, I went and the state you know, was with him for about six hours. I was the most racist person I ever spent time with. I mean, just in more this and more that. It was just horribly racist, you know? Many of the, the people that you did talk to on the variety of cases, whether it's uh, the bombing or the, or the you know, mm -hmm. the, the Freedom Riders in, it, that were killed in Philadelphia, many of them would talk to you and seem very mm -hmm. emboldened, like they yep, didn't they hedge their racism or their distaste no. for people different than them. Uh, not at all, and that was kind of the shocking part of it. Uh, I think they all presumed, because I was a white Southerner like them, that, um, you know, I shared their beliefs. And, um, you know, I would consider it my obligation to share with a Klansman what I believe one way or the other, or anybody else. I mean, you're just going to listen and and, um, and ask questions. And so that's what I did. And, yeah, they were very emboldened because, look, they got away with this. They understand why. I mean, they were gotten away with this for decades. So, yeah, they definitely felt involved. But each time when a case gets reopened and then there's an mm -hmm. indictment from a grand jury, um, then it gets more serious, and this could become dangerous for an investigative reporter like you. Yeah, I certainly had my share of death threats over the years, you know, involving, you know, that, you know, one guy said he had pictures and knew where I lived, uh, another guy said, you know, he, my throat was going to be slit and, you know, stuff like that. And he kept calling quite a bit. And, um, you know, it, it, I mean, obviously it's unnerving, but, but the other part of that is you expect to a certain extent um, that that kind of goes with the territory that, that in anything worth doing, you're going to experience some kind of blowback. And that's kind of what the blowback I had to deal with is just Beckwith and others kind of threatening me. I'm speaking with Jerry Mitchell. He is the author of Race Against Time, a reporter reopens the unsolved murder cases of the civil rights era. He'll be at the Fayetteville Public Library March 7th. In the initial, pat, you know, once you've had the secret files and you keep reporting, mm -hmm. was there ever a challenge in the newsroom, not because someone didn't want it reported, but because newsrooms have a finite amount of reporters and you were on courts and 
investigative work takes yeah. time. No, it's very true. I, I kind of had to juggle both during that er- those early years. Um, I would cover courts, but then I would also, you know, kind of work on the side on on these stories. Yeah, I had one editor who was not thrilled about it. Um, I, I he never expressed why exactly, you know. But my suspicion was always he, you know, he he just didn't think it was that big of a story. I mean, that, I know that's what he told another editor who told me. And uh, which kind of shocked me. I mean, because the thing that was that was bizarre about that was, I mean, when Beckwith was indicted and they had a press conference, you know, like the next day. I mean, I mean, there were news, you know, reporters there from literally all over the world. So I mean, it wasn't, you know, what I mean. There weren't just a few people there. So it was kind of amazing to me that that, that an editor would think that. You you talked to the men who were had been suspects, became suspects, and then later convicted murderers. But you also talked to relatives and descendants and friends of the victims. And what was that relationship like? Well, I mean, that was the real reward, I guess you'd say. I, I mean, I've, I've certainly been blessed and have won some awards, but the real reward was to— uh, you know, get to know these families, get to hang out with them and spend time with them and really just listen. You know, um, I'll give an example. The Vernon Damer case was one of the cases I worked on and, and uh, just an incredible family that no one has ever heard of, unfortunately. But he died basically defending his family from a Klan attack. And so the family's just uh, farmers, you know. Um, that's kind of how they grew up, farming. And... Um, to hear them and to get to know people, you know, families like his, uh, just it, it just changed my life. To be honest, it, it just made me realize, as as someone who grew up white and southern, you know, very protected upbringing, um, what African Americans had gone through, and I had really, to be honest, no idea when I started the journey. And Vernon Damer was uh, targeted; his family firebombed. Because he was simply working for the ability for people to have to exercise their legal right to vote. Correct. And he and his and his voting his voter registration card arrived three weeks after he was killed. I think for people who might not have been alive at that era, there might be a shock, not about the racism, not about the Klan's influence, but just how in some communities, how intertwined uh, legal and law enforcement were with the Klan? Oh, well, I mean, the Klan did it on purpose. I don't know whether people realize that or not. I mean, the the Klan specifically went out and targeted law enforcement, you know, when they, when they did this work. Like, they would recruit, you know, from law enforcement. And that was a, that was a plan the whole time with uh, the White Knights of the KKK. And so that's what they did. Um, Edgar Ray Killen, who was kind of the guy who orchestrated the the killings of the three civil rights workers, he he would hang out. I, I got this from uh, someone who covered that, that you know covered the Meridian Police Department at the time uh, in Meridian, Mississippi. He was uh, he would hang out there. He would recruit police officers, and there's testimony on that as well. And so, I mean, they were purposefully recruiting law enforcement officers, and of course, law enforcement was involved in the killings of those three, three young men, which is hard to believe, but, it, but it's true. In each of these cases, there's testimony yeah. from, from people who became FBI informants or, or had been in the Klan and for whatever mm-hmm. reason then testify against. Yep. And a lot of the convictions are aided by, by these people. They are. They are, in fact, yes. Yeah, Bill Roy Pitts in the Vernon Damer case, you had... Um, Delmar Dennis, who was, who was, you know, testified at the uh, uh, Meg Rivers trial. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's amazing, uh, and 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 some of them played a role, you know, in uh, kind of letting, um, you know, helping to get at the truth. I guess you could say as well. So it helping me in my reporting. So. You also write that 
while there are these high-profile cases that were reopened and the murderers convicted, there were others that it didn't work out. Oh, yeah. Yeah, far more that didn't work out than did. Uh, my book, you know, centers on the four cases that, that did go to trial. But there were far more that never went to trial or, like in the case of Emmett Till, went to trial, mm-hmm. but it was a joke. They were acquitted. Killers were acquitted, and then, of course, turned around and confessed. They killed him, you know, in a Look Magazine piece. So, uh, yeah, awful. It's important reading because it's important to understand, you know, when these first trials in these cases took place, the jurors, the juries would not have women. They would certainly not have people of color. It was, right. I mean, just to reread, even if you were alive then, to understand what was happening, not just in Mississippi, but across many parts of the South. That's very true. Yeah, it's very true. And and I think, you know, it's so difficult. I think the one reason I, I wanted to do this book is for people that, didn't grow up with this or, or know about it, you know. And I certainly, even though I grew up during that era, I mean, a lot of this passed by me. I didn't realize it all happened. And, I'm, and I, I wanted to write the book for that reason. I wanted people to be able to know what happened. And I've, I've gotten a ton of comments from people who've read the book. I had no idea all this happened. And it's so true. We, It's typically not in the history books, certainly not in this way, uh, to, to really the documentation of, of what all the, they were, the claim was a terrorist organization. And I think for whatever reason, the Justice Department has never declared them that. And I just, you know, it just blows my mind that they never have. But, you know, they're just, were, they were a terrorist organization. They're trying to sow terror, um, especially in the African-American community. And, uh, and a lot of that's gotten, a lot of the violence has gotten forgotten. Um, and so this is a way of kind of documenting, uh, you know, what really happened. The name of the book is Race Against Time. A reporter reopens the unsolved murder cases of the civil rights era. Jerry Mitchell will be at the Fayetteville Public Library March 7th at 6 p.m. Finally, I have to ask one last question. How much patience is required to be an investigative journalist? <laughs> a lot. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, in some ways it's not a ton different than, than a regular reporter. It's just that you get to spend more time with stories. And as any reporter can tell you, it, you're often going to have editors who want stories as of yesterday. You know what I mean? You right. work on a story, you know, why, why, why don't you have it in already? So yeah, it takes, it, it takes good editors too, uh, not just you know, good reporters, but good editors who understand the process. And always Debbie Skipper is my editor for this practically this whole journey. And yeah, it requires a lot of patience because you're going to run into a lot of brick walls uh, when you're an investigative reporter. And just, that's just part of the part of the process. Jerry Mitchell is the author of Race Against Time, and he will discuss the book with me at the Fayetteville Public Library Tuesday night, At 6, it's the latest edition of the Gathering of the Group series made possible this year with help from the Northwest Arkansas Community College as part of their Spring Arts and Culture Festival. Registration for Tuesday night's event is encouraged but not required. You can find out much more at faylib.org. Listening for us by artist Raphael Lozano Hemmer returns to Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art this spring. On view now through May 28th, this outdoor nighttime interactive experience includes eight immersive installations activated by visitor participation. Listening for us is free for ages 18 and under. Tickets at crystalbridges.org. This is Ozarks at Large. During Black History Month, our partner podcast, Undisciplined, hosted three live conversations around the region with a wide-ranging group of panelists. The first event was held at the Squire Jahagan Outreach Center with the topic of Black Erasure in Northwest Arkansas. We'll hear today an excerpt on the history and status of food insecurity in the region. The panel included David Street from the organization Bread for the World, Representative Denise Garner, who served parts of Fayetteville and founded the Northwest Arkansas Food Bank, Monique Jones from the Squire Jahagan Community Outreach and Food Pantry, Casey Cowan from the Northwest Arkansas Food Bank, Judy Kamau from the Razorback Food Recovery, and Tarius Bruce, who is a doctoral student studying food insecurity. We hear first from David Street, who answers the question why he is so passionate about the topic 
of food insecurity. I identify as Afro-Latino. Uh, my father immigrated to this country from El Salvador in the 1980s when that country was in the middle of a civil war. And my mom is a beautiful black woman. So I have these two amazing cultures and communities that I come from, but they're oftentimes the most marginalized, overlooked communities in the country. So when you talk about issues like education, immigration, food insecurity, you're talking about my folk. And so it's always been impressed and instilled upon me to try to do and try to be a helping hand within my community. So that's how I come to this work. That's how I see myself in this space. As far as where we are in this time, in this moment, I mean, Arkansas is very important with national legislation. When you think about the upcoming farm bill, uh, Senator Bozeman, he's going to have a lot to say as relates to what will be heard and not heard in those committee meetings. And so when we talk about things like college food insecurity, one of the things that we heard from college students all over the country is the requirement for a college student to be eligible for SNAP, the work requirement, that should be eliminated. You're a college student. <laughs> you should just be eligible for it, you know, if you fall into that category. Um, there are a lot of pantries popping up on college campuses more than ever. And so we know that that is a problem, and that's something that we know this farm bill can help rectify. Um, so many churches and organizations do amazing work giving food and meals out every day. But we know that this is something that legislation can also amplify and help. You know, you think about SNAP and how people survived during the pandemic it's because those emergency relief funds that really helped a lot of families and got them out um, during that tough time. And so this is why I'm here. Um, this is why I'm building relationships, listening more than anything, because this stuff is important to my communities and our communities. We may, if we're not experiencing it firsthand, we probably know people that are. And so good neighbors help each other out. David, can you talk a little bit about, I, <clears throat> I moved to Fayetteville as a grad student, and one of the first things that they told us in orientation was, here's where the food pantry is, go as often as you need, don't feel like you're burdening anyone else in the community. If you need food, if you can't get food, then come here and don't feel bad for taking what you need. Why are we doing this to grad students? Why are we doing this to undergrad students? Why are we forcing 18, 20, 22-year-old people who are going to school full time to depend on food pantries to be able to survive to, you know, make a difference in their community by getting a good solid education. I wish I really had a, a, a answer for that, a simple answer. I'm sure you could probably put, point to a number of factors, but I think the thing that I'll just say is unacceptable. And that's one of the things that we are trying to fight for at the national level. Uh, when it comes to this particular farm bill. The farm bill is reauthorized every five years. And so what goes through this year is gonna be with us for five years. What isn't in there isn't gonna be with us for five years. And so we wanna make sure we keep listening, having conversations. My organization, we did a lot of that last year. And so now we're meeting with our elected officials. This is what we heard in the community. This is what we heard in neighborhoods. You guys need to act on this. We wanna hold you accountable. And so that's where we are. Judy, as someone who is interacting with fellow students, you're, you're interacting with folks who are also, you know, going to school full time, going to school part time. What stories are you hearing from your classmates when they come into the pantry? Yeah, I would say that um, it's kind of crazy that most people don't really know they have access to the pantry. I think a lot of people assume that like in, you know, the main community food pantries are for people that really, really need it. So if you're a student going to school and you're getting your tuition paid somehow, some way, like you don't need the food pantry. Um, and so, yeah, it's most people coming for the first time and they're like, oh, I didn't know that I could get XYZ here just for free just by walking in and I can come up to t like two times a week as many times as I want throughout the year. Like that's amazing. So it's really people that don't know about it find out about it, are really happy with the results, and then go on to tell other people about it as well. I am curious, you know, to hear from uh, Representative Garner uh, about what uh, led her to create um, her organization that she did here. What was she seeing in the community, and how did she go about creating that organization um, to meet those needs? Absolutely. Uh, in 2010, Feeding America, which is another great organization like Bread for the World, a national organization that um, keeps data for 
hunger relief and um, and food insecurity. And in 2010, Arkansas was number one in child hunger. And we had a governor at that time that um, that made certain that uh, he was going to do everything he could do to to get those numbers uh, changed. And so he started uh, an organization with Feeding America, a No Kid Hungry organization in in the state. And um, and so he asked he asked the world through our church and lots of letter writing campaigns and um, had been involved in the local food uh, community in Fayetteville with some of the local farmers and restaurants and trying to get uh, local foods into the schools. And so he asked me to be on this task force. And I went down to the task force, basically thinking, um, you know, wondering how I was going to, how I was going to get my um, philanthropic Northwest Arkansas friends into helping uh, the children in the Delta that I knew had food insecurity problems. And what happened is I got down there to Little Rock to, for this meeting and yes, percentage-wise, the Delta probably has the highest rates in food security and in, in food insecurity uh, in our state. Although we've got lots of, of places that that have high numbers, but in terms of just quantity of children not knowing where their next meal is coming from, Northwest Arkansas had the highest numbers. And so that was a real shock to me. And I've worked in nonprofit, um, various nonprofit organizations for 40 years, almost 40 years up here. And it was a shock to me. So um, we had restaurants at the time. We were we were working with local farmers to try to make uh, make sure that we were serving local foods and making sure that they, you know, that the farmers were getting what they needed. We wanted the whole food system to, to be as sustainable as possible. And so we came back and basically just kind of put out the word and said, what can we do locally? And uh, there were a couple of restaurants that were utilizing the same farmers that we were. And so we kind of just by word of mouth decided that we would meet and see what we could do to get healthier foods out there to some of our Northwest Arkansas children. And what happened was we ended up, you know, I thought there'd be eight or 10 and we had 67 people in the first meeting and we had moved to the church. And uh, so so anyway, we met. And what we found out was that there were a lot of great people doing wonderful things, but nobody knew what the others were doing. You know, we've we've all got to pay attention. We've all got to get involved in the in the programs that that, uh, you know, we've we're talking about on these panels. And we've got to make sure that you're paying attention to what your government's doing, because the state of Arkansas is going backwards, in my opinion, and and that is just my opinion. And you'll talk to some legislators that feel like we're absolutely going forward. But you know, we have a bill that um, is is uh, um, trying to stop any affirmative action. And you know, when we're talking about women in business or minority businesses or just the statistics in health and uh, uh, hunger. In, in the state, we need affirmative action. And, um, you know, we, we are not anywhere near equity in Arkansas or in the United States. And so, um, you know, and especially uh, the folks, you know, the, the folks that have been in the receiving line for a lot of discriminatory efforts, that has just been exacerbated since COVID. So those issues have been highlighted, highlighted and, um, and, and certainly made worse um, with some of these, with some of the COVID issues. So, you know, we've got a long way to go. Um, you know, I think that, that we've got to, to relook at what's happening across the board with economic development and with the uh, economic insecurity, insecurity, the hunger feed insecurity. There's so much that is still inequitable in Arkansas and in the U.S. And until we deal with some of those systemic issues, um, I don't think we're going to deal with hunger in any significant way. You just heard from Representative Denise Garner, who serves parts of Fayetteville and founded the Northwest Arkansas Food Bank. You also heard from Judy Kamau from the Razorback Food Recovery and David Street, organizer for Bread for the World. 
Also a part of the panel was Casey Cowan, Monique Jones, and Terius Bruce. You can hear the full conversation in the Undisciplined podcast feed. This is Ozarks at Large. Guess who is with me inside the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio? Well, you can't because you can't see because this is radio, (laughs) but I'll tell you that it is Lee Wood, General Manager of KUAF. Welcome, Lee. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming in. It's uh, time to talk about something that's about talking. Yes, absolutely. And I'm very excited uh, to announce this. KUAF was awarded a grant from the Walmart Foundation um, to create a new project that we're calling the Listening Lab. So this is a uh, project that's going to have a space here at KUAF in the Carver Center for Public Radio, but also we'll have a mobile unit, meaning we'll have mics and a laptop and a board to record conversations uh, out in the community at other locations. And Really, the Listening Lab was inspired by StoryCorps. Which we're familiar with. We hear every Friday on Morning Edition. Has been here in the past with yes. their mobile unit. Yes. And um, which, you know, is this been this amazing, amazing initiative that was created by Dave Isay to record conversations between two people, archive them in the Library of Congress. And one of the things that StoryCorps has found as they continue to do work, they were founded in 2003, is that they did a survey in 2019 just of listeners to these conversations that said um, 94% of them said that it helped them to better understand the experiences of people who are different than them. 94%? Yes. So that's what we kind of hope to facilitate here with the listening lab as well. So we want to foster conversations in an intimate setting here at the station or on location with partnering organizations um, that can be around certain themes. But really the important thing is capturing the connection between two people when they sit down, share, and listen to one another. So We'll have a space here yes. dedicated to the Listening Lab here at the Conference Center for Public Radio, but we could also, say, partner with, I don't know, a bank or a nonprofit or Absolutely. a library. Yes. So uh, we're talking to organizations right now and hope to kind of schedule uh, the next 18 months, which is the life of this grant, although the, the Listening Lab will continue, um, around certain themes. So this is a great opportunity to have oral histories recorded. It's a great opportunity to have conversations that are Mm -hmm. cross-generational. I would love to hear conversations between um, parents and children or grandparents and children that are first-generation immigrant families about the experience of living here. Uh, I would love to hear conversations between natives to the area and transplants because we have so many. There are so many dynamics where the Listening Lab can be in the middle of uh, populations who may seem like they're different from one another, but I think what we find when we start sharing our own stories and we really listen to one another, that we have much more in common than we do have different. We have just started getting the materials put together. So the li- you, you, it's can't, not here you can't yet. do it tomorrow, <laughs> but we're giving you time to think about who you might want to have a conversation with or what two people you might want to have to facilitate that conversation. Absolutely. In fact, um, on our website at KUAF.com, under the Community tab, you can go and there's a page for the Listening Lab that gives you a little bit more information and a Google form there that you can uh, fill out if you want to request, if you're an organization, that you have a proposal uh, for having sort of a, a longer term um, setup of the mobile unit at your location or at a proposed location, or if you're an individual that wants to request uh, using the Listening Lab to record a conversation with someone that you know. We can go to Tahlequah. We can go to Garrison Avenue in Fort Smith. We can go to the Boone County Library in Harrison. All across the KU Listening Area. Yes, absolutely. And these conversations will be archived on their own website. So the Listening Lab will have a website. It's coming soon uh, where these conversations will live and be um, accessible to anyone in, across the world. Who's going to oversee all of this? Well, that's a good question. Uh, so we actually just had a position uh, 
to coordinate this project uh, open at the University of Arkansas. So if you go to their human resources page and their career site, you can see that there's an hour listening lab program coordinator position. That person uh, will work 30 hours a week and really help to facilitate the full function of the listening lab. So work with community partners, work with scheduling with individuals and organizations, work to get the recording, to post the recording. So it's a kind of a, a position that has a lot of different hats, but a really tremendous opportunity to work with the public mm -hmm. if this is something you're passionate about. All right. The listening lab, and where can people sign up? On At KUAF.com, under the community tab, you'll see the listening lab listed. And if you're interested in being the person who oversees this? You better apply. Uh, go to, again, um, the Human Resources site at the University of Arkansas. They have a career site, and you can apply for that there. Uh, and you have until midnight on March 12th. Lee Wood, General Manager at KUAF, thank you very much. Thank you. In 1983, NASA sent its first female astronaut into space with a bit of extra cargo. When comedian Marsha Belsky heard the story, she just had to write a song. Warm into space for only six days, and they gave her 100 tampons. Humor us. That's next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. The TED Radio Hour, Sunday afternoon at 1 o'clock on 91.3 KUAF. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Van Buren, and Blue Eye. Contributors today included Jacqueline Froelich and Karee Banton. Our appreciation to KUAF General Manager Lee Wood for telling us about the Listening Lab. Our theme is written and performed by Daryl Sean. Also, thanks to Rachel Sanchez-Smith for getting us uh, information about the Pedal It Forward. That's right. Film Festival, and to Josie Lenora, political reporter at KUAR. That's right. When you mentioned Blue Eye, mm -hmm. were you talking about Blue Eye, Missouri, or Blue Eye, Arkansas? Uh-huh. <laughs> Is that one of those where it's like Kansas City, where it's on the line? Yes. That, no offense to Blue Eye, but that's about the only thing that Blue Eye and Kansas City <laughs> have in common. Yes, so Carroll County has Blue Eye, Arkansas, and it's beautiful, beautiful uh -huh. part of the world. And then you can go into Blue Eye, Missouri. Ah. Yeah. I haven't been to Blue Eye, Missouri, or... Blue Eye. If you Arkansas. are going to Kansas City or St. Louis and not staying on I-49, right. it's like north of, I think it's just north of Garfield. Okay. No. No. No? It's more north of Green Forest. Right. Mm. I think. Green Someone Forest, will correct me. Blue Eye. Right. Exactly. Yeah, there you go. Uh, Matthew produced today's show in the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2. Tomorrow on Ozarks at Large, Timothy Dennis and I are going to sit down and talk about live music for the weekend. I don't think we're to patio music season yet. It's still it, technically winter. Yeah, yeah. We're getting close, though. I mean, we had a really nice day yesterday. There's probably going to be some storms over the weekend, but right. we're getting really close. It's, it's baseball season. It's patio season. In Like a Lion, Out Like a Lamb, right? Mm -hmm. March. So, uh, but anyway, Timothy and I will talk about music. We're going to have a new sound perimeter from Leo Ribe. Paul Gatling will get us caught up in what's happened in business the last five days with the Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report. Lots of uh, material on tomorrow's show at noon and 7. And you can always go back and listen by asking your smart speaker to please play Ozarks at Large. That gets you the most recent edition of our show. That's right. And if you ever want to listen to individual stories, you want to share those individual stories, you want to find the Spotify playlist that Tim makes every every That's right. week That's right. for uh, Talking Tunes, you can find that at OzarksAtLarge.com. All right. So uh, Matthew and I are back with you tomorrow. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for your continued support of Ozarks at Large and KUAF. From the Carver Center for Public Radio, I'm Kyle Kellums. I'm Matthew Moore.